Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve others sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturday at 5.30 and Sunday at 9 and 10.30. Um, we are continuing and wrapping up our series on deconstruction and doubt uh, that we've been calling Faith and Doubt, which we've been going through for the last uh, three weeks. But before we get into that, I want to just make you aware of what's coming next as we wrap up this series. So we are really excited. We are launching next weekend a small group campaign around the book of Acts, where we're going to be walking eight weeks um, all the way up until Thanksgiving through the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at Acts 1 through Acts 12. Um, and if you're newer to Waterstone, you've maybe noticed that we do a lot of topical. Um, that's kind of been a new rhythm for us this summer. We did a, a lot of topical preaching in the last couple of weeks where we did a series on faith and family, and then we've been in the series on faith and doubt. Um, we're going to be getting back to what Waterstone loves and what Waterstone does best, which is diving into a book, walking through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, looking at these stories and acts of God's expansion of his kingdom, the spreading of this movement of people from Jerusalem all the way to the ends of the earth. So we're really excited about that. If you haven't signed up for a small group yet or want to be in community this fall, we'd love for you to sign up. And you can go to waterstonechurch.org on our small groups page, and you'll see a number of groups that are listed that are open. They meet different nights of the week. And we would just love for you uh, to be able to, to sign up and join us on this journey. So we're really excited about that. There's also a table out in the hub. If you have any questions after service, I'd love to, to answer those for you too. All right, so we are wrapping up Faith and Doubt. Uh, three weeks ago, Elliot kind of kicked off the series and he talked about really the journey of faith. And he talked us through what it's like to construct a faith and that all of us come to these moments of doubt or what we're calling deconstruction uh, where we have to kind of take apart our faith and, and look at our faith from different angles and examine it. And then we come to a place where we eventually have to reconstruct our faith. And then last week, Nick really did a deep dive into what is doubt and the theology of doubt and what we do with doubt. And just as a, a refresher, we've been using this phrase, this term throughout this series uh, called deconstruction. And this is the definition that we're using for this term. Deconstruction is the process of taking apart and examining an idea, tradition, practice, or belief to determine its truthfulness, usefulness, and impact. Sometimes to the point of no longer identifying as a Christian. And this is a phenomenon that we're seeing all across our, our culture where people who have grown up in the church are, are really deconstructing and, and maybe doubting, walking away from their faith even at times. Or, but really at the heart of it, it's an examination of what they've been told to believe and whether or not they actually believe it. And I think it's important before we go any further just to say that if you've ever experienced a season of deconstruction or doubt, you know this to be true. But it's important for us to remember if we're not in that season that no one wakes up in the morning on a Monday and just thinks, you know what I really want? I, I just want to go through a crisis of faith. Like that's what I'm just looking at. I hope that'll happen. Like no one wants that, right? Doubt and deconstruction is always the result of, of circumstances and things that often happen to us. Ways that God is maybe not making sense in our life. And it's a result of circumstances, not often a choice that people make. And as we've been looking at this series, I thought an appropriate place to, to kind of close the conversation about doubt and deconstruction over this three-week journey is with the question, where is God in the midst of our doubt and deconstruction? So we looked at kind of the journey of faith and we looked at what doubt is. But today I'd like to take a moment to just ask the question, where is God in the midst of our doubt and deconstruction? Because if you've been in one of those seasons where 
your circumstances, your experience doesn't align with God, you often wonder, where is God in this season? Where, where is God's presence? It feels like he may be absent or that he's not, not there, that he's not at work. And, and so it leaves us with these questions of where is God in the midst of hardship and suffering and doubt and deconstruction? So that's what I'd like to take a look at today. One of the other things that we've been talking through this series is that um, oftentimes we have kind of an understanding or a paradigm of faith that sees faith as a fortress, right? A brick fortress, Elliot and Nick both talked about this, but the idea behind the fortress is that when you look at your faith, you have this understanding that you have to have all the right beliefs, all the right behaviors, and you need to be kind of 100% certain that all of them are in the exact right spot. And, and so we construct this fortress of faith to make sure that it stands the test of time, that it doesn't crumble when we go through hard things or, or that we don't have to, to deal with doubt. And we want to make sure everything is aligned just perfectly. A few years ago, my wife and I, we got to go uh, on a mission trip to Spain um, and work with refugees. And while we were there, at the end of the trip, we took a couple of days to, to kind of um, travel and, and enjoy Spain. And while we were doing that, we took a day to drive the Spanish countryside, which is probably the most pretentious sentence you'll ever hear me say, okay? But we drove the Spanish countryside, and as we were driving um, through all of these different towns, one of the things that was remarkable about this region of Spain is they have fortresses that are just scattered all throughout the region, and all of them um, are up on top of these hills in the middle of the plain, so they, they have kind of the high ground. And you can just drive, pull over, walk through this fortress, no one's checking tickets, no one's looking, and you can just explore and journey through this fortress. And one of the things I realized as we were walking through these, these fortresses is that it's really clear they had kind of two purposes in mind. And the first is that any fortress, or if you've ever spent time around a medieval fortress, it's designed to protect what's inside, and it's designed to kill anything that's outside of it, Right? And so you have like things like really small doors for people to get through so you can defend the fortress better. Or you're up on top of the hill so you have the advantage as people come and try to attack the fortress. Or you have all the ramparts and, and places where you can attack people as they come. Because you're trying to protect what's inside and you're trying to kill any existential threat outside of your fortress. And my fear is this. When we have an understanding of faith, that it's a fortress that we have to protect or defend, that people outside of our fortress are our enemies and that we just have to, to prove to them that God is real or tell them the right things to believe or make sure that their fortress looks exactly like ours. Oftentimes, we, we actually end up killing the spiritual lives of the people that God has called us to reach. When, when they start doubting or they start wrestling with their faith or asking us hard questions, we don't have time for that because it's a threat to our fortress and so we have to push them away. The second issue I think that we often have with this metaphor is that if your faith is a fortress, if that's your paradigm for faith, then, then doubt or questions or wrestling, it's not only a threat from people out there, but it, it's a threat to your own faith. You, you don't feel the freedom to ask where is God in the midst of this because asking hard questions of the faith, you put the fortress at risk. It, it's a threat to your fortress remaining certain and strong and, and fortified. And, and so we have fears about stepping into doubt and deconstruction. And, and really a lot of us can have suspicion about those terms. Or we see people step into doubt and we think, oh, that's just the slippery slope away from the faith. And really at Waterstone, what we want to say is, is doubt is not a slippery slope. It is part of the journey of faith. 
And I think one of the beautiful things of Scripture is that it actually encourages us with stories of people who have doubted, of people who have walked through hard journeys of faith. And in fact, that's one of the things that we hope to be as a church, is a place that doesn't see our faith as a fortress, but, but sees it more as a, a road. Where you can take the bricks of the road, and unlike a fortress where you have to make sure the integrity stays intact and that, that there's no threat, so you can examine it and you can look and say, does this really fit or is this part of the journey or do I need to let this go? And sure, it might make the journey more bumpy, but it's not an existential threat. It's not something that will, will cause your faith to crumble. It's just a part of the journey of life with God. And so that's where we're going today. And there's this beautiful story in the Old Testament of the prophet Elijah. It's one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. Um, it's one I come back to regularly in my own personal journey with God. Because Elijah, you have to understand, he is one of the most important prophets in the Old Testament. I mean, he is a heavy hitter. It's basically like Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament are, are held up as the, the two kind of main prophets of God's people. And Elijah comes onto the scene, and when he comes onto the scene, God calls him to be a prophet to the people of Israel in a time of, of uncertainty and unfaithfulness. So the people of God have walked away from God, and they're challenging God, and they're worshiping other idols, and God calls Elijah into a ministry of calling God's people back to himself. And this is just kind of some of the resume of faith that we have from Elijah. Uh, starting out, uh, God sends a drought over the land of Israel to try to wake the people up to the fact that they've been unfaithful. And in that, Elijah is prophesying and telling people to come back to God, and God is sustaining him. So God commanded ravens to bring Elijah bread and meat daily in the midst of this drought. So as Elijah's preaching and, and prophesying and telling the people to come back and no one's listening and the drought is tearing apart the land, God just brings him bread daily to sustain him. And after that, Elijah moves in with a widow and a young boy who uh, God helps replenish their food so that they don't starve during the famine. And then when that young boy gets sick and dies, Elijah has the faith to raise the boy back to life. I mean, he has incredible power. He sees God's provision and power throughout his life. And then kind of the pinnacle of Elijah's ministry is this battle he fights in 1 Kings 18, where he wins a battle against 850 prophets of the false god Baal. And so what happens is Elijah, he, he comes out of hiding and out of this place where he's been hiding with this widow. And he says, okay, the time has come. God is going to move. He's going to act. He's going to bring the, bring the people back to himself. And so he sets up a contest on top of a mountain next to the Mediterranean Sea where he calls 850 prophets and challenges them basically to a, a, to a duel. And he says, we're going to build an altar for your God and an altar for my God. And we're going to pray. And whichever God shows up first and lights the altar on fire, that's the God that we're going to worship moving forward. And so Elijah, he, he sets this whole contest up and he, he asks them to go first. He says, you can have the ball first. We'll see who wins. But you can go ahead. You can pray. You can do your thing. Worship your God. And let's see if he shows up. And so the people begin praying and nothing happens. And so then they begin dancing and, and working themselves up in worship and nothing happens. And then they get to the point where they start flogging themselves and beating themselves and drawing blood to try to wake up their God to get him to show up. And they're praying, dancing, worshiping, and nothing happens. I love Elijah because he kind of gets this like cocky attitude. He starts trash talking them. He says, hey, I, I, I don't know. Maybe your God is like asleep and he can't hear you. Or, hey, maybe your God is, is, is like in the bathroom. Maybe that's why he's like not worshiping you. So he starts trash talking them. And they like get all worked up and they're angry about a tragedy. And they keep worshiping and nothing happens. 
then Elijah steps forward to the altar that he's built before God, and he has them just drench it in water. Because he doesn't want them to think there are any tricks in what's about to happen. Then he just says a simple prayer. There's no dancing, there's no worshiping, there's no flogging, and he just says, God, would you show up and turn these people's heart back to you? And fire rains down from heaven and consumes the altar. And God shows up in incredible power, and the people, they're just, like, amazed. And they fall on their faces and begin worshiping God. Revival begins happening, and all of the people of Israel who have seen this, they begin worshiping God, and they're so on fire for God, and and they're so convicted that they've run away from God and worshiped other gods that they begin killing the, the prophets and the 850 prophets who have led them astray. And it's this this pinnacle moment in Elijah's faith where he encounters God on the mountaintop. It is the beginning of of his kind of doubt and deconstruction, which doesn't really make sense when you look at the story. But after this amazing victory, he gets a message from the queen at the time, and she's so furious about what's happened that she says, may the gods destroy me if by tomorrow afternoon I have not killed you. And this is Elijah's response. It says that Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the broom bush and fell asleep. And all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. So when you read that, you just have to ask, like, what would cause a, a person like Elijah to doubt and, and to flee for his life? I mean, this is a person who daily for three years God has shown up in provision for him, feeding him daily. He's seen God raise people from the dead. He just went through the most intense victory of his ministry life, and he finishes it, and someone threatens him, and he flees and runs. I mean, how can a person who's experienced that kind of provision and power of God doubt God so deeply that he runs away from the situation? I think Elijah is a lot like you and me. And that if we're honest with ourselves, when we go through seasons of doubt, it's, it's not always just about the circumstance, right? I mean, we have seen God show up in our lives. We've seen God be faithful in certain circumstances. And then it comes to a place, for whatever reason, that a particular instance, a particular thing that happens in our life, it's, it's the thing that, that's too much and that shakes our faith. And it causes us to question, where is God in the midst of this? Is God good? Is God with me? And I think that's what Elijah is experiencing in this moment. You see, the the trajectory, the expectation of Elijah was that God has shown up in power and everything is about to change. I'm no longer going to have to live in hiding. The people of God are going to turn back and be faithful. The king is going to come back to faith. Everyone is going to turn back and my ministry is finally going to come to fruition. His expectation is that God is about to show up and change things. And instead, his life is threatened and things get worse instead of getting better. I think for so many of us, our doubt is wrapped up in our disappointment with God. Elijah is disappointed with the way that God is showing up in his life. 
He doesn't like God's plan. The, the things he believes to be true about God and, and the things that he wants to be true about God are not happening in his life. And so it, just like so many of us, our, our doubt is often way more experiential than it is existential. Right? Like some of us question and wrestle with doubt about like, okay, where was God in the Holocaust? But for most of us, our doubt is rooted in our experience where the God we believe in does not show up in the ways that we want. And so we doubt and we question and we wrestle because God is not showing up. He, we are not experiencing God that we believe in. So this is Elijah. God is not meeting his expectation and so he's filled with doubt and so he flees and runs away from his responsibilities, from his duties, and from God himself. But the, even though God doesn't meet Elijah's expectations, he still meets Elijah in his wilderness of doubt. This is what it goes on to say. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb. Now Horeb, the mountain of God, that's another name for Mount Sinai. Uh, Elijah is running away and traveling to Mount Sinai, the mountain where God came down in his presence to Moses for 40 days and 40 nights on the mountains, gave the Ten Commandments, gave the instructions for how the people of God were supposed to live with God. Uh, Elijah is hoping to have that kind of encounter with God, and so he runs back to the place where Moses received the Ten Commandments and wants some sort of encounter with God. But notice in Elijah's doubt and in his disappointment how God meets him in this space. God doesn't condemn him or judge him or reject him or say, what are you doing out here? Why are you running away? Don't you remember all the ways that I've been faithful to you? Why would you doubt now? No, God shows up in compassion in Elijah's doubt. And he feeds him. He acknowledges that the journey is too much for him. He compassionately takes him aside. He provides Elijah with rest. And he gives him a little space to breathe and sleep. You see, what Elijah finds out and what I think this story tells us is that in the midst of our doubt, God appears to be compassionate with us. I think some of us, when we have this idea of a fortress mentality, we think that if we doubt, that, that it might cause God to, like, reject us or resent us or maybe regret saving us. Or that if we have any sorts of questions, that, that God does not want us to ask the big questions of the faith or, or that God does not want us to wrestle with our faith. And what we see in Elijah's story is that God shows up in his doubt with compassion and grace and mercy, not condemnation. I love the story of Elijah because if Elijah has, has raised someone from the dead and, and has had a momentous victory in his faith over 850 other prophets and has seen God's provision and has seen God's power and he can still come to a place he doubts, how much more permission do we have with our own doubts and our own questions and the ways that we wrestle with faith and the ways that we don't understand what God is doing in our life. Where is God when we doubt? He shows up in compassion. And he doesn't expect us to just pretend that everything is all right. He doesn't ask us to just smile through the pain. He allows us to be honest. I think there has been way more damage done 
to the Christian faith by Christians who think that they have to fake it until they make it and who are willing to be honest with their doubt. We don't have to pretend. And as a community, we need to be people that not only tell ourselves, give ourselves permission to doubt and wrestle and question, but create that space for others to be compassionate when they're doubting, not judgmental or not defending the faith to make sure that they don't pull apart the things that we think are certain. Elijah gives us permission to stop pretending. But in the midst of, of his doubt and God showing up in compassion, the compassion isn't quite enough to get Elijah back on track. He, he still goes to the mountain despite God's grace and mercy in the space. He still kind of runs away from his responsibilities and, and what God has called him to. And so he goes to this mountain and flees, but God still shows up in that place too. It goes on to say in verse 9 through 13, And the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites, all of the other people, they've rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars and they've put the prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. So I think not only do we often experience doubt because of God and how he oftentimes disappoints us or doesn't live up to the expectations that we might have for him. Sometimes we doubt like Elijah because we're disappointed with God's people. And when we look at the people of God and we see the hypocrisy or the way that they hurt other people, we think, I don't know how to reconcile who God's people are with who God has said he is. And that tension creates so much frustration in us that we just think we have to, to walk away from the faith and give it up because I'm the only one who's being faithful. And if no one else is faithful, where could God be in the midst of this? So many of us experience seasons of doubt because of, of hurt that we've experienced within the church, with our families who, who taught us about Jesus and then lived out a different way. So many of my former students who've walked away from the faith when I talk to them, that the heartache that they experienced from, from being in families that kind of had this, this identity around a, a fortress of certitude with their faith that didn't allow them to question or doubt or wrestle or, or just showed up with the platitudes like, hey, everything's going to be fine. God's good. You don't need to have those questions. And then life kicks them around and they don't, they just feel so hurt and abandoned and neglected by the church and their families because they didn't give them permission to doubt. I remember in my own story, when I was 20 years old and my mother passed away, we were standing in the receiving line as people talked to us after the service. And I'm 20, I'm standing there with my 10-year-old brother and my 12-year-old sister. And I remember person after person telling them, hey, it's going to be okay. God had better plans for your mom in heaven than he did here with you. I just remember being so angry. And I know it often comes from a good place. We, we offer these platitudes and the, these kind of nice sayings to try to make things feel better and make things be okay. But it actually damages faith because what people need to hear is that this isn't right. This is not how the world is supposed to be. I understand your questions and your doubts. And I will sit in those things with you. We hurt other people's faith and we hurt our own faith. When we don't give them the space to doubt and wrestle in the hard places of life. And not only does God show up for Elijah with compassion, 
But in Elijah's isolation, when he removes himself from God's people, God shows up and meets him with his presence. He doesn't just leave him out on an island. And this is important. And it's a, it's a pastoral and, and I hope an empathetic word. Is that I resonate at times with a desire to walk away from God's people. See, I, I think Elijah had this belief, and I think oftentimes we have this belief, that it's easier to encounter God in the wilderness than it is in the worship center. Because we get around God's people and we get hurt and we see the hypocrisy and it's hard to, to navigate that and see who God truly is. And so the temptation is always there to walk away from the people of God. But what I have seen, both in my friends and my family members, is that in that space and in that, that disappointment with God's people, a step away from God's people often is a step away from God. And you don't intend it to be that way, but you don't know how to reconcile who God's people are and who God is. And so you just step away from God's people. But as you do so, you end up stepping away from God as well. And so if you're in a, a season of doubt or frustration with God's church, I think what Elijah finds here is that, that God is with him and calls him back not only to himself, but to God's people. Can you hang on in that frustration and disappointment and continue to see God's presence in those spaces? Because that's what Elijah encounters. He, he, he encounters God's presence in the midst of his isolation. God comes to him and says, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore apart the mountains and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. What is God doing here? And Elijah has run away from everything. He's run away from the people of God. He's run away from God and his responsibilities as a prophet. And God meets him with his presence. But it's not the presence that Elijah wants or expects. You see, in Elijah's isolation, God offers him his presence. But, but like so many of us, Elijah, he's experienced God's power and his provision. He's experienced God in the loud and the dramatic where God just wakes us up and says, I'm real. I'm the most real reality of all things. And Elijah is wanting that experience again. He's traveled to this mountain hoping to have this kind of loud, dramatic encounter with God. And God is showing him a different side of himself, that he's not in the wind that shatters mountains. He's not always in the earthquake that, that shakes the foundations of mountains. He's not even the in the fire that descends from heaven. But sometimes God shows up in the still, small whisper, in the intimate, in the vulnerable. You see, Elijah wanted God to show up in, in the dramatic and, and prove to him that he was still real. And God says, you've seen my power and you still doubt. 
See, I think God is showing Elijah in this moment that not only is a God of, of power and might and provision, but, but God is a God of presence. That in our doubt and in our struggles and in our suffering, God offers us not just the power to fix everything and make it better. He offers us his presence to say that he is with us in those spaces. And to be honest with you, I would, I would much prefer in my life if God showed up in the way that wowed me and knocked me on, off my feet and, and made himself real to me where I, I had no more questions or doubts. But it's often in the doubts that we see something deeper about who God is. Mother Teresa, some of you may know this, but after her death, she, she spent her entire life living for the poor and the marginalized of our world and, and suffering alongside them. And after her death, her journals, her, her personal journals were kind of made public. And people were shocked to find out that for the last half century of her life, for 50 years, she did not feel God's presence. As she was serving the poor and living amongst leopards and, and the, the sickest people in our world. She questioned whether or not God was even alive. These are some of the words she used to describe her faith in these journals. Her religious experience was dry, empty, lonely, torturous even at times, dark and devoid of feeling. One of the heroes of our faith, that one of the most magnificent servants of God, spent 50 years wondering whether or not he was even with her. And, and skeptics or people outside the faith, they may look at her story and think, see, that's the proof we needed. That this person who you've held up as a hero of the faith, she didn't even know if God was real and she didn't even feel God's presence. How can you believe God is real? And that misses the very heart of what God reveals about himself, both in this story. What a testimony that Mother Teresa is, that even though she was not sure God was with her or his presence was with her, she still lived a life of faithfulness to him. You see, for so many of us, we struggle. We want God to show up in the loud and dramatic. And what God is telling us is that he is there intimately. And it's not that we can't chase the mountaintop experience. It's not that we can't long for the goosebump moment when we worship God. But if that is the, the foundation of our faith, when that feeling goes away, our faith will go away. We need to believe that God is with us, not just in the loud and the dramatic and the powerful, but in the still, small, gentle whisper that says, I am with you. And that's what Elijah is learning about God. God is subverting his expectations. Because the truth is, and I think this is a hard truth for some of us to grasp, is that God is not always the God that we want but God is always the God that we need. That we want God to show up and fix things and, and fix our marriages or fix our work situation or fix our suffering. And God can do those things. But more often than not, the God that we believe in is a God who has given us his presence in our doubt and our suffering and our longing. A, a God who says, I am with you. I'm with you in the wilderness. 
The beautiful thing about the story of Elijah is he gets an, an extra gift, not only the promise of God's presence, but he also gets this, this revelation of what God is doing behind the scenes in ways that Elijah can't experience or know. And he comes to him and he says, hey, just so you know, I know you're, you're looking at your experiences and then you think I'm not at work. But, uh, but I want you to go back to the people. My work is not done yet. And so you're going to anoint this king who's going to take up the sword and judge all of those who have walked away from me. And you're going to anoint this king who's going to bring revival and bring the people back to me. And you're going to anoint Elisha, a prophet that will come after you and carry on your ministry after you. I am still at work even though you cannot see. See, God is not always the God that we want, but he's the God that we need because he works in ways we cannot see. And it is often in the times that God feels most absent and most distant that God is doing his best work. That when all of the, the, the things in our life have gone dark, God is shining and bringing light in ways we cannot see. You see, we not only have a God who promises his presence in the wilderness, we have a God who has said that he has walked the wilderness. When, when you look at the story of Jesus, we see a God who is not just Emmanuel, God with us, but who has gone to the places of doubt and worry and anxiety and fear. We see Jesus, who, who on the night before he was crucified, is crying out to God, asking him to change his plan, asking him if there's another way. Jesus knows what it's like for God not to show up in the ways that we expect or want or desire. And yet he remained faithful. That's remarkable. That when we come to the table and that we remember Jesus said to his disciples in that upper room at the Last Supper, he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you so that you may be forgiven and experience my presence like never before. Hours later, he prayed and cried out to God and said, is there any other way? Can you do something else? But the next day as he hung on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, in Jesus, we have a better story that not only does God promise to be with us in our doubt, but we have a God who, as crazy as it sounds, doubts himself. That in Jesus, we not only have someone who is with us, but someone who has walked that wilderness of doubt before us. And not just walked it, but come out the other side and conquered it by the power of his blood and the cross. As we come to the table today, I wonder what it would look like to find yourself in that story. Are you maybe like Elijah and you think you're the, the only one who's been faithful to God? You're the only one who's, who's defending the faith. And say, what would it look like if instead of defending the fortress, you, you just joined Jesus in the wilderness? That, that you stopped thinking that it was your responsibility to prove to other people that God was real and that God was true, to make sure that all of their beliefs are in the exact right place, that all their behaviors align perfectly and you trust God in that space. What would it look like if, if you were someone who's not just defending the fortress, but you are, are doubting and, and you really just want to tear the fortress down. You are so bitter and angry at the church and the hurt you've experienced. 
Now, I encounter students all the time who they are so angry about the experience they had in church or in the faith. They hate the Bible and they cannot stand the hypocrisy of the church. And in those conversations, there's always a turning point where they say, yeah, but. And the yeah, but is always found in this. Yeah, but there's something about Jesus. I don't like his book and I don't like his people, but there's something about the story of Jesus. The story of the God who doubts and who walks through the wilderness. And if that's you today, I wonder what it would look like to turn to Jesus, turn to his story, and hang on for just a little longer in the season of doubt. Because I think what you will find is that there are some stories that are too good not to be true. And when we come to the table, when we encounter a God who suffers with us and for us, who, who walks the wilderness of doubt, we see a God who is faithful to us in the midst of our own suffering and doubt. That we're reminded of the story of God who broke himself for us, who's compassionate and offers his presence in the midst of our suffering and doubt. And I would love for us to reflect on that story of Jesus as we come to the table today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, I ask for those of us who are in a season of longing, of wrestling, of questioning, God, that, that we're not sure where you are at in our circumstances that our experience of you is not aligned with our expectation of you. God, I pray that you would meet people in that space. That like Elijah, we could hear this still, small, gentle whisper that reminds us you are with us. God, I pray that as we come to the table today, we would be reminded of the story of Jesus. That we would be drawn to his beauty that we not only have a God with us who offers us his presence, but we have a God who has walked the roads that we walk, who's experienced the doubt and the longing, a God who can pray, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, I pray that we could turn to that Jesus in this time and be comforted and know the truth of his beauty and grace. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.